excited to start, and I want to welcome everyone and encourage you, if you would, hit the mute button down in the lower left portion of your Zoom contraption. And uh, we, are, we are continuing our study called The Reign of Life based on Romans 5 to 8. We've done a, a pretty lengthy excursion into the nature of sin and temptation. And this morning, we're, there's a handout on the webpage you want to access. And we're going to look at these <coughs> lists of sins. There's an awful lot of them in the Bible. And uh, so I want to ask the question, as we get started, why does God give us these lists of sins? And before I do that, let me pray for us. Lord, with heavy hearts, we bow before you and hail you as our God and Father, the Lord of all the earth, Lord of the nations. And we plead with you to look upon our nation with mercy and send your spirit to bring uh, to all hearts your comfort, your peace, your reign of grace. Um, look upon all of us, Lord, those who know you, those who don't, with mercy. And create in our hearts knowledge of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord. And heal our land, Lord. Oh, how to pray, what to say. You know, and so we beg you and plead with you. Heal and help our land. Use the church of Jesus to that end. Use Wallace to that end in our relationships. To live before others with the peace of Christ under the reign of Christ. Heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me ask you again to hit your mute buttons. I can, I can hear folks, so don't forget to hit your mute buttons, please. We're going to ask, we're looking at our handout, if you can find it. Uh, we're in the middle of the page that at the top says what defiles a person. We've worked through that part, and we're going to start in the middle of that page with what contested the spirit. Mute buttons, folks, mute buttons. Please find your mute buttons. Make sure it's got a red line through it. But I want to start, beloved, with this question. Why does God give us so many lists of sins? You, and particularly in the New Testament, you keep running into them. Why? Let's answer that question because it's important. First of all, of course, everything God does is because he loves us. And so God gives us lists of sins because he wants what's best for us. And sin is always destructive. Perhaps you read Proverbs 13 yesterday. I think I counted seven or eight allusions in Proverbs 13 alone. There were a few this morning in 14 that alluded to how sin destroys. It's destructive. It's dehumanizing. 
So God loves you. He wants the best for you. This is any parent telling a child, this isn't safe, this isn't good, this isn't healthy. Both telling us what is good for us and warning us about what's bad for us. We instinctively love and want to protect our children. God loves his kids. He wants and wills our protection. This is why he tells us what sin is and why and how it hurts us. So that's, that's the, one of the big reasons. Second reason God gives us lists of sins, I hope you can see this okay, is we need to know what those things are. So in giving us lists of sins, here's a litmus test to see if my life is conforming in the way I walk and the way I talk, that's sort of the broadest way to break it down, what I do and what I say. Here's a list of sins that help me know uh, what sin is. Paul, we're going to discover this in, in, in Romans 7. Paul says, I would not have known coveting unless the law had said you shall not covet. So it's confronted with the law of God, what the law of God requires of us, what the law of God forbids, in that we find out, we, then we know what sin is. And on the flip side, I've put here ignorance. The point is, what you don't know may be hurting you. Some of you are, need to have a gluten-free diet. And so you're buying a food at the store. And nowadays, virtually everything is marked gluten-free if it is. But you take that product and you look at the ingredients for as an act of self-preservation because you know if you eat something with gluten in it, it's going to make you sick. You don't want to ignorantly consume something that's bad for you. So that's sort of the flip side of knowledge. Why does God give us a list of things? He loves us. We need to know what those things are. We don't want to be ignorant of those things. And I have, fourthly, the Word of God as a mirror. You're reading the Bible, you read these lists of sins, and you go, okay... I, I have a sense for the way I live and the way I think and, and the way I act, some sense of it. A lot of it sin hides from us. But here's a mirror in these lists, a mirror that shows me, oh, gosh, uh, that was abusive speech. Yeah, the Bible says that's sin. Okay, so here's a mirror to reflect back to me. And that requires self-awareness of our behavior, doesn't it? The next thing I say, uh, these lists show us, is what happens when myself is out of control, sin is emblematic of an unbridled self. This is what sin makes me look like when it's not constrained. When my personal agenda rules my heart, often these are the things that show up, the unbridled self. So as we look at some of these lists today, you can say, okay, left to myself, self-assertion, self-protection, self-sufficiency, self-indulgence. These are the particular manifestations of those things. The next thing to note about these lists of sins is they describe gifts gone wild. So God gives us many gifts, the gift of time, the gift of relationship, the gift of words, the gift of our emotions, the gift of authority, the gift of sex, the gift of substance. When these things are used in ways not conforming to God's will, when we use them on our own terms, not God's, 
These are the sins that result. So often, a lot of these sins are the gifts God gives us on steroids, not under the constraint of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing to notice, these sins are, I'm just calling it anti-God. When we read these lists of sins, we can be absolutely certain these are things God will never do. They are contrary to his character. And one of the points we've been making in this study, and I think in some of the sermons, is that the premier thing God is looking for on the earth among his image bearers is just that, a reflection back to him of the glory of his righteous image. This is the ultimate reason to do anything, to bring God glory, to reflect back to God something of the glory of his character in the way we think and act and speak. And obviously, as we're going to see in our study, that's going to be impossible unless our hearts are under the control of the Holy Spirit. And again, these lists of things are, are representative of a heart where the Spirit of God is not ruling. Uh, what happens when we take God on our own terms, these kinds of sins? Two examples, I think, in our culture among Christians would uh, you see a lot of younger Christians saying, oh, it's okay to sleep together. We intend to get married. And so there's a, there's, there's a dishonoring of God's sexual ethic. They just, they, they don't want to be too much different than the culture. All right. You can maybe put it this way. I love plants. I love shrubs and trees. And, and you can tell a healthy shrub from a diseased shrub because a healthy shrub is always sending out new growth. So if you go to a nursery and you want to buy a new whatever, look for new growth at the ends of the stems. And new growth usually has a, it's a lighter color than the rest of the foliage on, on the shrub or the tree. Look for new growth. Or you've got shrubs or trees on your property and you want to, and you, how do you know it's diseased? Well, you can look at the color of the leaves. Are the leaves brown? Are the leaves yellow? Are the leaves black? Are they turning white? These are often moisture issues. The, the, you're getting too much or not enough moisture, not enough exposure to the sun. Janice uh, looked at one of the trees we planted this spring, and she thinks that it's been uh, harmed by the deer. The deer have come by, and they like to, I don't know what the technical term is, they like to rub themselves against the trees or eat the leaves. So she did a little inspecting and she thinks the deer are contributing to the demise of this new tree that we planted. Sometimes you've got the voles hurting the, the voles in the ground, the moles hurting the roots. Sometimes there's a fungus in the ground. Here's the point. Depending on what's wrong, you treat it accordingly. And there are signs, there are indicators. So these lists of sins are indicators, they're signs there's a heart problem in me. I need the spirit of truth, the spirit of beauty, the spirit of Christ to produce that and less of me or none of me, preferably. Let's go to the lists. As I said, we're in the middle of the page, which at the top says what defiles the person. 
And the next list we're looking at is what contests with the Spirit. And this is from Galatians 5, 19. Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. You can see them. The works of the flesh manifest themselves. They show up in what? In these kinds of sins, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Notice how in those last several ones that I mentioned, they're all relational. They're all uh, scenarios where my agenda, my demands, my emotions are gobbling up relational unity. Uh, and and, and uh, where, I'm, where I'm elevating myself over, over others, of course, Satan loves to destroy unity among Christians, among people. He loves to destroy it. Then I have to examine what's going on in my heart that's producing enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and oh, he's going to go on now, to envy drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Again, we call these representative lists, not exhaustive lists. I guess if we were to go through the Bible and pick every single kind of sin that the Bible ever listed, maybe even that list would be representative. But these represent a heart where the flesh is in control. The flesh is having its way, not the Holy Spirit. And Paul's quite sober and serious when he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, so when he was with them, or written them before, he warned them. Now he's warning them again. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Take serious stock of the quality of your life. I think Paul and 2 Corinthians, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. So there's a sober, serious appraisal of the fruit of my life in light of what God is desiring to produce under the control of the Spirit. Similar list, uh, the next heading is what grieves the Holy Spirit, and this is from Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk, that verb, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that adjective uh, in the Greek, it means putrid. So imagine you take potato salad, coleslaw, and some meat, and put them in a bag and set them out in the sun for five days. What do you have? Putrid, rotting, something you wouldn't really want to go near with a 10-foot pole, right? You wouldn't want to go near it. It would just stink to high heaven. So he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Remember, Jesus said what comes out of the mouth originates where? In my heart. So if I find myself saying things that feels putrid, corrupting. Yeah, I've got to look into my heart. What's going on in my heart that I'm saying these things? And in very typical Pauline fashion, he, he doesn't just tell you what not to do. He tells you what to put in its place. Put off this, put on this. Extremely helpful. So if you're, if you're, if you're uh, putting a litmus test on the quality of your words and you find your, your words are rotting or whatever. You go, well, how, how am I supposed to talk? He tells you. 
He says, but only such is good for building up. That requires me to look at another person and ask the question, how do they need to be built up? Assume everybody needs building up in one way or another. But only a word that's good for building up as it fits the occasion. So we need to be thoughtful, we need to be discerning, we need to be deliberate, we need to be sensitive to the specific occasion that we're in, the specific situation that we're in. Certain occasions require certain words, other equations require different words. And here's the goal, that it may give grace to those who hear. So stop before you speak and think, will the fruit, will the result of what I'm saying be an edifying, a building up of this person bringing them grace. Sometimes it might be a hard word of correction. Uh, sometimes it, uh, it might be uh, an encouraging word, whatever. But the bottom line is, we want to bring grace to those who hear, just like the word of God itself that originates from the Holy Spirit brings us grace. And he goes on, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You have to wonder if Paul's thinking about, the, about the, the agency of how the Word of God comes to us. It comes to us by the Holy Spirit. We understand it by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has, a, has a, an, um, an essential, integral relationship with words, not just the Word of God, but with our understanding of the Word of God. And so when we're talking in ways that are putrid, the spirit, he says, is grieved. That tells you what the spirit longs for are words from our mouths that are mimicking, mirroring on par with the pure word of God, of which the Holy Spirit is responsible to make sure it gets into the mouths of apostles and prophets and into our hearts so that we understand it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he gets specific. Another list of sins of the tongue. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul assumes that these things lie in my heart. He assumes they're there. He's writing to Christians who will be, we will be tempted, depending on the situation, with these kinds of things. So forewarned is helped. Put them all away along with all malice. Be kind, Here's the, there's the put off, here's the put on. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. So here's the litmus test. Are these words expresses of God's kindness? God's tenderness, do they bring grace, do they build up? Forgiving one another, he assumes we're going to hurt each other. He assumes we're going to do things that potentially fracture our relationships. He assumes we're going to sin against each other. Paul assumes by this you will be sinned against by your kids, your parents, your spouse, your friends, fellow church members. Forgiving one another, and here's the critical word, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So before you react to somebody, stop. Remember what your sins deserve. You deserve help. 
You deserve eternal judgment where the worm does not die, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness, the flame is not quenched. This is one of the reasons why Jesus gives us these very vivid depictions of eternal agony so that we can stop and go, I'm not getting, that's what I deserve. I'm not getting that. I am not getting that. Jesus has rescued me from that. He saved me by his mercy. Now let that mercy, the reality of that mercy, may it permeate my heart, may it grip my heart. This grace, this love, not because of my behavior, but all through Jesus Christ, may that constrain me. Will that make you kind and tender-hearted, knowing what you deserve that you're not getting? Absolutely. This is the way Paul reasons in his ethics. The word as is very critical. In fact, he goes on at the beginning of chapter 5, and he says, uh, imitate God as beloved children. You're a beloved child of God. What is that worthy of? Well, imitating the Father. This isn't, this isn't how we get God's favor. This isn't how we get saved. We're saved by Jesus, by grace, by mercy. Think about what he saved you from. That will melt your heart in the way that you deal with difficult people. Because however difficult people are towards you, we were far more difficult in God's eyes. Our sin was far more offensive. Okay, so what contests with the Spirit, that's a list. What grieves the Holy Spirit, that's a list. What is contrary to a saint's profession, goes on in Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality, that's the Greek word porneia, that referred to sexual activity Outside of a man and a woman in a marital relationship, any sexual activity outside of that is porneia. A man and a woman in a marriage relationship, anything beyond that is porneia. Uh, sexual morality, all impurity, covetousness. Let's stop and think about covetousness for a second. What is the opposite of coveting? Contentment. Coveting is lusting for what you don't have. Somebody else's. And it could be anything. It could be their honor. It could be their gifts. It could be their appearance. It could be their things. Coveting, the, the opposite of coveting is contentment. Wanting what you have. Wanting what you have. And why that's important is because if you don't want what you have, You'll be tempted to find fault with those things. So when Janice and I first arrived in College Park, and we began this commute back and forth to our home in Virginia, our car had some age on it, I got bit by the new car bug. I think uh, uh, they had, were given 0% interest, and the prices were good on new cars, so I started doing all this research about getting a new car. My sweet wife is sort of watching from the sidelines and finally ways in. Now, here's the point. As I'm beginning to look for a new car, I'm instinctively finding fault with the one I have. This is a mark of discontent. So finally, Janice, the voice of wisdom, the voice of reason weighs in. Do you really think we need that? The reality was, no, we don't need that. Wisdom prevailed, thank the Lord. But my point is, discontentment can be fueled with finding fault with what you already have. I'm not saying it's, there's not a time in, in, in your life to get new wheels. There may be. You, that, there may be very good reasons for that. 
But if you find your heart mounting up uh, reasons for what's wrong with something, uh, th then just look in your heart and, and, and uh, you know, start with what's wrong with you <laughs> and then move out from there. So the opposite of covetousness is contentment. Doesn't Paul say if we have food and clothing, we shall be content? This is an amazing uh, gift of the Lord for our hearts to be content, covetousness. We'll see something more about that perhaps later this morning. He says, I don't want that even named among you as is proper among saints. So here's the public reputation of a believer within the church and outside of the church, living in such a way that publicly you're not looking like something that betrays an exceedingly covetous person. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. Out of place in light of what he just told us about how these words grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the spirit of purity, the spirit of righteousness, the spirit of love, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the beauty of God. He wants our words wrapped in those things. So no, no, uh, no wonder they're, they're out of place. But instead, there you go, put off, put on. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. What a profoundly simple antidote for all kinds of sins of the tongue. So rather than joking about sex, so when I read this, I think of locker room talk as an athlete. Unfortunately, you hear locker room talk, crude, crass guys talking about sex in the locker room. That's one of the things I think about here when I see this. Instead, thanksgiving for God's gift, a focus on the gift giver. So there's incredible power in gratitude. So if you find yourself grumbling, you find yourself discontent, you find yourself coveting, stop and express gratitude for what it is you have, not least gratitude for who God is and who God is for you in Jesus. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Tremendous power in gratitude. For you may be sure of this, here comes the warning. Here comes the warning. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater. Why is coveting idolatry? Because coveting ultimately is dissatisfaction with God himself. I want something to make me secure. I want something to make me happy. I want something to make me fulfilled. I want something to give my life gravitas. I want something to give me meaning apart from God. We start with the first commandment. One God, be satisfied in God alone. We end with the tenth. Here's the litmus test. Are you really satisfied with God? Or are you constantly craving other things? That's why coveting is idolatry. This person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. See, he, he's, see, lists of sins require sober warnings about judgment. Every sin in the universe is going to be judged. That the nature in God's universe, we live inexorably in a moral universe. That means with a holy and righteous and just God. Every sin will be punished. Every sin. Every sin requires punishment. 
So it's, it's staggering, it's amazing that all of the sins of God's elect were punished in the body of Jesus. That's, it's, it's unfathomable to think about what Jesus suffered in that truth. So every other sin will be punished justly. This is why uh, the, the death of Jesus is an act of justice. God justly punishing our sins in Jesus, who ironically deserved none of it, right? He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. What he deserved what to, was, to, was to waltz into heaven on the strength of his perfect moral record. Instead, he takes the judgment due us gives us his perfect moral record so his enemies can be his friends. This is the, the staggering gravitas of the gospel. So here comes the warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness. Think about what you were before you were converted. But now, <coughs> excuse me, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. Put your life under that microscope. Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So we, how do you do that except for the word of God and time and prayer and maybe talking to someone and asking God, what is pleasing to the Lord? Well, thank God he gives us these lists of what it means to be righteous and what it means not to be. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Maybe he's thinking of Jesus' image that we are salt and we are light. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. Say a lot more about that. Let's move on to the next list. What marks the old man in Colossians 3? And uh, just a programming note, the next two weeks, ruling out Dory Kenyon will be walking with you through Colossians 1, uh, excuse me, Colossians 3, 1 through 17, uh, the fruit of his own study and thinking about that. And it's, I'm sure it's going to dovetail beautifully for what, with what we're doing here. Thank you, Dory. What marks the old man? So I won't steal this thunder. I'll just point out a couple things here. Put to death, mortify, kill, crucify, look ruthfully upon, have nothing to do with, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, porneia, impurity, passion, that's the Greek word pathos, that's a drive that won't rest until it's satisfied, a drive that won't rest until it's satisfied, evil desire, that's our Greek word epithemia, Remember our, our uh, the word we're using over and over again, epithemia. The Greek word for desire is thumia. That's a perfectly fine to have desires for things, thumia. When you put the prefix epi in front of it, epi simply intensifies the word that follows it. So this goes from desires to over-desires, inordinate desires. And in the ESV, it's going to be translated almost all the time, evil desire. What makes it evil is you're wanting a good thing too much. You're wanting a gift inordinately. You're wanting a gift to, at the exclusion of the giver's guidelines for how to use it. 
Okay, evil desire and covetousness. That's an insatiable, selfish greediness, which is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Dissatisfaction with God himself, God and his ways. And here comes the warning. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Paul's always willing to remind believers, think about what you were. You've been converted. Glory to God. This isn't to heap condemnation. It's to remind them you've been rescued. You've been delivered when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. You used to live that way. These things are still a part of indwelling sin, which is in my heart. These things want to express themselves. Before I was converted, they had their way in me. Now that I'm a new person, the Spirit of God dwells in me. I'm a temple, a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not a slave to those things, but those things are still present in me. And they still want to, they still want to reign. This is why we struggle with sins from our pre-converted life. We still struggle with some of the same things. It says, when you were living in them, but you put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Uh, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with the evil practices. What's implicit in these things is you're going to have conflict with others. And we're called to healthy conflict resolution. Not, not just in an unbridled way, voicing our, dis, our, uh, our dissatisfaction with them, our displeasure with them, but entering into healthy conflict resolution. Where you listen, you enter in, you empathize, you start with, I sense maybe something's not right here, or I experienced you in this way, perhaps I'm wrong, put the onus on yourself, and enter into a mature dialogue, get information, dig out the data, listen to each other. Don't assume you're right. Assume that your pride may be getting the better of the situation. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to hurt each other. This side of heaven. But God has given us his spirit and power in the new self to bring resolution. But there are skills that need to be practiced. There are graces that need to be, that need to supplant the old way of responding. Anger, malice, wrath, flying off the handle, lying to one another. So this implies healthy conflict resolution. What a gift God gives the church. What marks times of difficulty? This is from 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. How, how will we know those? Here it is, in technical. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. You're probably aware that in the Greek language, there are three words for love, philos, eros, and agape. And even though there are books written about how these have really strong distinctions, just from my knowledge of the Greek language, the, the, those distinctions aren't so uh, fast and true. For example, this is lover of self, it's philos, it's the word for philos. You know, we think of Philadelphia brotherly love. Well, this is the, the Greek word for philos, the Greek word philos, lover of self, philos, lover of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, particularly in your speech, abusive speech. 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless. And you have to think, Paul has seen these sins manifested in places he's gone, maybe in his own life before he was converted, maybe in some of the churches. But so where do these lists come from? Well, he's probably drawing on his experience of watching other people do relational breakdown, of watching other human beings try so helpless, so pitifully to have their own way in relationship at the expense of breaking down relational unity. His next phrase, swollen with conceit, that literally means to be filled with smoke. So it makes you wonder, oh my goodness, does that mean when I'm thinking I'm better than other people, I've started a fire in my soul that's producing smoke that keeps me from seeing others as they really are, that keeps me from seeing myself as I am, that's burning up humility that needs to be there without which relationships won't flourish. What an interesting phrase, swollen with conceit is literally to be filled with smoke. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Is pleasure in and of itself good? Of course. Pleasure is created by God. He's a God of unspeakable pleasures. You read the Bible and you see that. But any pleasure loved more for itself than God becomes exceedingly dangerous. The more you love a pleasure, that's going to gobble up your love for God. The only antidote to loving pleasure is loving God. This is why we really have to work so diligently, so, so with such discipline, in seeking the Lord and loving the Lord, lest to any degree we don't love God more than life itself, those things are going to gobble up what's healthy in us. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Why avoid such people? Uh, you know, we're supposed to have relationships with unbelievers. Paul would never deny that. But if the company, right, Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. So the people that you're around a lot and you're taking your cues for the way you're supposed to live, if those people are living this way, you're going to be tempted to join them. You're going to find it harder and harder to say no. Um, when our son Luke went off to college, in his first semester, he lived in a dorm. And he was shocked to see human beings coming in, drunk, out of control, vomiting all over themselves, making complete idiots of themselves, because he'd never seen that in his life. Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. I'd be, I would feel really bad if Luke went off to college and wrote a letter home saying, Dad, the people act just like you here. You know, that would not be good. He had been uh, insulated, as it were, from that. And so the question is, uh, 
how do I how do I love those people with the gospel but keep my distance so I don't enter into that same kind of sin and debauchery? Be careful in these relationships. Uh, let's do one more. What marks an unregenerate life? This is from 1 Peter 2.1. We saw this, I think, in a sermon a few weeks ago. Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What do these things do to relationships? They destroy them. They undermine them. Remember, God is a highly relational person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living an absolute perfect relationship with themselves and God longing to see that unity, that love, that affection mirrored in our relationships. Again, the best reason, the ultimate reason for our relationships is to glorify the God of our salvation, the relationship that he has in himself. These are the things that undermine that, that destroy that. I put this template over my heart and I have to say what's going on in my heart. That I put my agenda, my desires, my emotions ahead of relational unity. People are going to disappoint us. People are going to irritate us. People are going to sin against us. But we have vehicles, we have power in the gospel to manage these things. And sometimes you need to call in somebody else to help you. And then Paul says in Titus 3.3, 3, uh, for we ourselves were once, Paul includes himself in this list, we, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, epithemia, and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Who wants to live in that kind of community? I mean, who wants to be in a place where everyone's hating each other? Who wants to live in a place where uh, what marks human relationships is malice, envy? It's just pure self-indulgence for everyone who's there. That's, that place is a disaster. Thank God we have power in the gospel, looking to Christ and asking that his spirit constrain our hearts and produce the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, think of how, how uh, relationally uh, edifying the fruits are. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. A self under control, the Holy Spirit is aware of these temptations in the heart and then desiring that the Spirit produce these as we wait upon Him, as we pray, as we get the Word of God in us, the Spirit using the Word to shape our words, our thoughts, our emotions, and therefore our relationships. So I'll pick up again in this list in several weeks. Please tune in uh, next week to, uh, to Dory leading you through Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy teaching because we've got in front of us all of these, all the ugliness of humanity. And it shows us how sad, how tragic how desperate human beings are apart from you. Thank you that you've sent Jesus to rescue us from these things. Thank you that he has taken our sins in his body 
borne the wrath, the judgment, the eternal destruction due us for these sins. He somehow has borne it all. May this stagger us. May this melt our pride and self-sufficiency. May it create in us love for others as Jesus has loved us. Bring these fruits to bear in this precious church, through all your churches in this country, and continue to have mercy on our land and pour out your spirit to bring people under the reign of the kingdom of God for his glory's sake. Amen.